This is the Eminent Domain Podcast. Okay, and I'm Taylor Swift. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to our show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Pendulum Land Podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry. We are your primary source of news, trends, and developments in eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and the Uniform Relocation Act. I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Bennett. Today, Kristen, our guest is the host of a very popular and renowned podcast. We got Joe Rogan. I thought we were in a feud with Joe Rogan. Not, no, not Joe Rogan. Dax Shepard? No, not Dax Shepard. Sarah Koenig? Who is Sarah Koenig? Oh my gosh, Sarah Koenig, the host of Serial. Like the most popular podcast ever. Kristen, you know I don't listen to podcasts. Okay. All right, look, we also have a guest today that is a high-profile and wildly successful eminent domain attorney. Oh, Dave, are you talking about yourself again? You are so arrogant. Try a little humility on your size. No, I'm not talking about myself. Oh. And we have a guest today that is a published author of a fantastic book. John Grisham? No, I said a fantastic book. Glennon Doyle? Who's that? Okay, uh, John Steinbeck? I don't like Steinbeck, you know. No, I don't. Nobody likes Steinbeck. I don't like. I don't like Stein. Nobody likes Steinbeck. Well, my mom does. My dad does. Ooh, what do you think that tells you? They like depressing literature. I think they do. Yeah. All right, Dave. Um, you're just gonna have to tell me more about these amazing guests. No, it's not guests plural. It's just one person. Okay, so you're telling me that we know someone who is a has a wildly successful podcast, uh-huh. is a renowned eminent domain attorney, uh-huh. and a published author. Yes, we okay. do. No way. All in one. We absolutely do. And he is a great friend of the Pendulum Land podcast. Oh, he's in my neck of the woods. You're talking about Clint Schumacher? I'm talking about Clint Schumacher. He's back with us today. Now, Clint is the host of the very popular and informative Eminent Domain podcast, which can be found on all podcast platforms. He's a partner at the law firm of Dawson & Sod LLP, and he's the author of a brand new book called Second Wind. Now, Kristen, I learned from listening to Clint's podcast that one of his favorite movies is Fifty First Dates. Did you know that? Oh, I love Fifty First Dates. Yeah, it's got Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler and Sean Astin. Like from Goonies? I don't remember. Yeah, he is from Goonies, (laughs) yeah. And I think there's an appearance as a supporting actor by Jocko the Walrus. I don't remember that, but I do remember it's set in Hawaii and they ate lots of spam. Or they talk about spam, right? They did. Now, that that Sean Astin's character brought it in. He was all roided up. Great, great supporting character. And he talked kind of funny because he he took too (laughs) many steroids. And towards the end of the movie, I don't know if you remember, Adam Sandler was getting ready to go somewhere and shove off on his sailboat or something. And and Sean Astin says, hey, I brought you a present. I brought you spam and peanut butter. And then he says, I love spam and peanut butter. Can I have it? And then takes his gift back. Do you remember that? Yeah, and you do a, re- you do a really good impression of that. And in fact, you know, in general, you, you kind of remind me of Sean Astin's character in that movie. Wait, what? Uh, never mind. Go ahead. Okay. Well, anyway, so the premise of the movie is uh, Drew Barrymore's character. She's a lovely, delightful young woman. I think she suffers some sort of accident and has amnesia. And every single day, Adam Sandler has to make her fall in love with him all over again. Oh, it's like uh, Groundhog Day for dating. Yes, Groundhog Day for dating. 
Now, Kristen, I also learned from Clint's new book that one of his other favorite movies is called While You Were Sleeping. Do you remember that one? Oh, with oh, Sandy Bullock. Sandra Bullock and Bill Pullman. Yes, and a cute, cheesy guy with eyebrows. What's his name? Peter Gallagher. Peter Gallagher, yeah. Except Bill Pullman's character in While You Were Sleeping, he was kind of a lovable guy, and you pulled for him. He was the polar opposite of his character in Sleepless in Seattle, which we talked about in the last episode. <laughs> yeah. What about Walter? What about Walter? Sandra Bullock worked in, like, at a subway station, like, collecting tokens. Cutie pie, eyebrow, Peter Gallagher is like walking through. I think she sees him every day and kind of likes him. And then he like falls in the tracks and is about to die or something. And she saves his life and goes with him to the hospital. And then he has amnesia. And so she, every great movie has some something about amnesia. Have you ever known anyone in real life to am, have amnesia? No, I, actually, I've never, I don't know that I've ever met anybody who has amnesia. Maybe I have it right now. Yeah, apparently you do. But okay, so he has amnesia and she decides... She's going to like pull this fast one and pretend like they are fianced. Okay. Uh-huh. Like she's going to pretend like she's his fiance. So when he wakes up, she's like, hi, honey. What? And yeah. And he's like, I don't know who you are. And she's like, oh, you have amnesia, which he does. So she pulls this whole fee, like she just pulls this whole stunt and convinces her family and their friends and him that they are engaged and in love. All the while, she's falling for Bill Pullman, who plays Peter Gallagher's brother, and the anti Walter. And the anti-Walter. And he's so adorable in that movie. Oh, my gosh. I know, but I, like, how do you get out of this? How do you come back from telling everybody that you're engaged to Peter Gallagher and then falling in love with his brother? I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe Clint knows. We'll ask him about that. So, Kristen, the name of this episode is going to be 50 First Dates with Clint Schumacher. I love it. But why not while you were sleeping? Uh, uh, Kristen, why don't you think that through to its logical conclusion? Hmm? <laughs> oh, Okay. All right. Good point. Clint Schumacher is a high-stakes trial lawyer, a high school football coach in Texas, a two-time TEDx speaker, and an insightful author. He's passionate about building teams that are resilient, engaged, and motivated. He has a unique experience of both working to solve complex legal problems and coaching young athletes to succeed. Clint works in two of the most complex and competitive environments, the courtroom in the football fields of Texas. Clint Schumacher, welcome back to the Pendulum Land Podcast. How are you? Oh, Dave, I'm doing well. I hope you and Christian are doing good. It's it's a uh, great honor to be on your show. Thank you for thank you for having me. It is a great honor to have you back. Yeah, Clint, thank you so much for joining us again. I think um, I, I kind of want an update on your uh, on your dog because last time we had you on, <laughs> I believe you were having a uh, squirrel hunting adventure with your docs and Sam. How's Sam? That's- that's right. Uh, Sam, Sam is doing okay. Sam is still kicking along now, probably since last we talked, at least publicly, Kristen, um, we have acquired another dog, an American Akita named Coda and our American Akita. She's a great dog. We got her from, from a local pound, uh, but she's a very dominant dog. And so poor Sam is suffering the consequences because she's quite a bit bigger than Sam and she has him completely intimidated. And so poor Sam, you know, uh, other than being intimidated anytime he gets in Coda's presence, he's doing okay. Oh, is Akita, is the Akita getting all the squirrels these days? Uh, the Akita is actually quite the squirrel hunter and I have a pretty funny <laughs> video. I'll send you, I'll send you <laughs> offline of her chasing a squirrel down to the top of the fence. Yeah, I'll she's need, pretty good at that. So I'll need to see that. It sounds like Brunswick stew is on the future menu <laughs> at the Schumacher <laughs> household. <laughs> she hasn't caught one, at least so far as we know, but yeah, maybe in the future. 
So, Clint, uh, I want to talk a little bit about your podcast, which is called the Eminent Domain Podcast, and we razzed you about the name a while back. <laughs> but, but actually, I want to compliment you and whoever researched that to determine the name because it's great. If you're interested in Eminent Domain and you Google Eminent Domain and Podcast. Well, who do you think comes up first? It's not the Pendulum Land Podcast. <laughs> no, it's I can the tell Eminent you that. Domain Podcast, right? Yeah, right. Well, and I, th- I think that I told you before. True story. And, and I, for the longest time, was not much of a podcast person. Didn't even know what they were. And finally, I was looking at this icon on my new Apple phone a couple years ago, and I pushed on it and kind of researched what are podcasts. And so I googled Eminent Domain because that's something I was interested in. Your podcast came up. And the the first episode of the Eminent Domain podcast is literally the first podcast I've ever listened to. Oh my goodness! Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I listened to that, and I still didn't really understand what podcasts were, and so I didn't listen to any more for a while. And then we launched the Pendulum Land podcast last year, and spent probably five or six months researching how to do it. So y- you could say that your podcast was the inspiration. For ours. Oh my goodness. Wow. Okay. You could absolutely say that. And you could also say that we kind of just want to be like Clint Schumacher when we grow up. Uh, uh, y'all, uh, hopefully that's not, that's a very low bar. Hopefully your, <laughs> your sights are set way, way higher than that. You, you know, I, I was an early adopter of podcasts. I loved listening to podcasts and I got some advice maybe early in my career about Automobile University, which is, you know, if, if you really want to take your personal development to the next level, take advantage of all that time we all spend in our car. And so one of the greatest ways to do that was, was podcasts and audio books. And, and so I was probably an early adopter to the podcast. And at, at some point, you know, now a, a few years back, I, I was a general litigator, although I've always done condemnation work. And I was just kind of going through that point of life of saying, okay, well, what does the next phase of my career and life look like? and decided, you know, I really love doing eminent domain work. I think I'm good at it or better than most. It's a unique area of law and I understood it and I understood the law pretty deeply and felt like I could deliver a lot of value to clients who hired me to do that. And so I made the decision to really begin to focus my my career around eminent domain cases and and take less and less of the other stuff and more and more of the eminent domain stuff. And at that point, I read a book called Book Yourself Solid and my one of my takeaways from that book was is as you're, you know, out competing for clients like we all do, to the extent you can differentiate yourself with some kind of value added proposition all the better. And I thought, you know what? I love these podcasts. Uh, it was still, you know, a little bit ahead of the curve. They weren't as popular then. They weren't on things like Spotify or any anywhere else. They were harder to find. Uh, but I decided to launch a podcast and and it's really uh, had a lot of serendipities. I've I've gotten a lot more out of it than than uh, I've put into it. Well, that raises a really good question. Um, so, so did did you feel the call of the podcast, and then you needed a topic, or did you conceive of this podcast as kind of a marketing platform for your practice? Um, you know, it's it was some of both. I mean, I think that I was at that time of life already deciding I wanted to do something. I wanted an additional outlet. And I had been toying around with the idea of doing a youth football podcast because at that time I was coaching youth sports and um, enjoyed talking about it. And I think I even acquired a website to launch that podcast. And around that same 
point in time, I was going through the the life inventory of what what am I going to do next, and decided I you know really wanted to pivot more strongly into the eminent domain work, and that's when I decided you know what that makes sense from a podcast uh, standpoint. Nobody else at that time was doing it, and um, and so I decided to launch it. I read probably. Uh, three or four books on podcasting before we started because I knew so little about it. And then I've read another three or four books after our first season to try to upgrade our look, so to speak. You know, how, how can we get better? But, right. you know, all the authorities say the same thing. Don't do it if you can't commit to it. If you, if <laughs> no, it, that's right. It is a yeah. commitment unless – don't do it unless you can commit. And the worst thing you could do – is, you know, put out an episode ever so often or take some time off or deliver some bad product or, I mean, you got to go all in or don't do it. And that's the truth, man. No, that's exactly right. And and I have definitely had spells, you know, where I've gone without an episode. I mean, I think I just released an episode this week, but it had been like five weeks in between episodes, which is too long. So I try to release one every, you know, twice a month, so roughly every two weeks. Um, but I've gone through a few spells and it, you know, as you guys may have seen, you know, your numbers do dip when you, when you're not consistent about getting out an episode. And when you are consistent about getting out an episode, your audience kind of, you know, gradually grows to reward you for your diligence, but you're, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I think, and it's true for me, for podcasts that I listen to, if something's coming out consistently, I look for it. I budget out time. There's a certain podcast I listen to every Saturday morning because they're going to release it every Friday afternoon. And if they missed or they were inconsistent, eventually that one would fall off my radar. Yeah. And you've had some great episodes. Um, I, I listened to the, one of the more recent ones, uh, Saving Stuyvesant Town. Is that is yeah, that what it's yeah. called? Fascinating. Right. How do you come up with your topics? Well, so for that particular episode, that actually came just from a conversation I had with an, a gentleman that does another podcast, not not legal related, named Chuck Garcia, and he had just had the author Dan Garodnik on his show, and he said, "Clint, you got to have Dan on your show. I think it'd be great for your audience." And I did a little homework, and and sure enough, reached out and thought, "Yeah, this will really fit for for who listens to my show," and had Dan on, and it was great. Sometimes it's people that are reaching out to me with ideas. Um, sometimes it's people that I meet at conferences. And then I, you know, I kind of regularly scan the agenda for eminent domain conferences. And if there's either a voice that we haven't heard from before or a subject that we haven't talked about before, I'll reach out and see if they'll agree to be on the show. You know, Clint, in us doing this podcast, it's funny, we started it and, um, one of us, it wasn't me, but one of us said something like, I mean, are we going to run out of topics? And I'm like, oh my gosh, in right of way, no. I mean, there's a, we're never going to run out of topics. And so far we haven't. But yeah, it's amazing how people come to you and go, oh my gosh, here's a great idea. But yeah. Clint, you know, I, I have, we've started to get, you know, I'll be at a, a conference or something or at a, an IRWA event or something. And people will come up and say, oh, it's people I don't know. They're like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Um, there's just not enough of this sort of content in the eminent domain world and your voice is important. And I never have those conversations that your name doesn't come up to. And I feel like we uh, have probably a very, uh, I think most of the people that listen to us and listen to you, um, if not all. And so it's really fun to hear people talk about like, Oh, wow, it's so nice for our industry and for, for there to be a voice to that industry and a resource for those in the industry and maybe those affected by these sorts of projects. So it's, it's, and I'm always so honored to have our podcast mentioned in the same breath as yours. So thanks for that. Well, yeah. And I, you know, I feel the same way about you guys. I'm, I'm excited that there's maybe a voice on the other side of the aisle. And uh, it's, I think, you know, I, I very much keep up with what, 
what y'all's podcasts are and listen to them. And, and uh, you guys put out some great content and, you know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying. I mean, I think I get a lot more out of it than I ever put into it. And so anytime somebody comes up to me and says, Hey, I listen to your podcast. I'm always kind of blown away that they would give me that much of their time. It's a great honor. Sure is. So uh, the eminent domain podcast, how long has it been on the air? It started, man, that's a good question, Dave. I, I, um, I should have looked this up before I talked to you. I think it's, I launched it in the middle of 2017. Yeah. I do know I just released the 66th uh, episode. And as I say, I try to do it twice a month. I'm not always consistent, but I'm 66 episodes in on probably what's almost a four year time period. Kudos, sixty-six. That's a lot of. That's a lot of talking into a microphone, isn't it? Yeah, it is a lot of talking <laughs> into a microphone. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I still have anything to say that people will listen to. Well, I don't think you'll ever run out of that. Do you have like a team of people who help you produce your episodes or come up with outlines, or, or is it just Clint doing it? You know, it's just it's just me. Um, I have a thought about trying to outsource pieces of it. But, you know, candidly, the, the time it would take somebody to tell them how to cut it or whatever else is almost yep. the same as what it just yep. takes me to cut it myself. <laughs> and I'm, I, I am pretty, I'm pretty, I'm going to say controlling, that may not be the right word, but, but, but I, I very much want to know the topic that I'm going to talk to somebody about. And so I want to prepare my own outlines. I want to make sure I'm conversant with whatever it is I'm going to ask them about, because I, I view my goal as the host as to try to draw out the best content out of that guest that I can. And I can't do that if I'm not very conversant with the material. And so I just think it's an important part of the process to do that work myself. Yeah, we're the same way. And we do it all ourselves. We, we plan it, we outline it. We, Kristen does the graphics. We do our own editing and upload it. And I, I don't, I'm kind of like you, man. I'm not ready to hand off any of that yet. I'm afraid we'd, we'd lose something. Um, so that was, that's actually one of my questions is, is who did y'all's graphics? So do you do them all yourself, Kristen? I do. I do. That's and impressive. Y'all you know, got some good stuff. It's, I love it so much. It's so much fun. I, I just, I got a little, a program that lets me um, do design graphics and, and mess with them. And I, it's a really fun little creative outlet for me. You know, I started out in the in the fine arts world, and it's it's something okay. that I don't feel like I get to do enough in the eminent domain world. I do get creative with relocation. I mean, as you've seen, Clint. <laughs> but you but know, it's a lot of fun. I love doing the graphics. And and, it, and, and Kristen's graphics help us build our brand. And we were talking about that earlier today, and we were talking about kind of the, the juxtaposing your – um, the vibe and brand of your podcast versus ours. And Kristen says, you know, we're kind of like the crazy fun aunt. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's great. the respectable, it's... like very knowledgeable and respectable uncle. <laughs> yeah, right, you're, right, right. Okay. you're right. The wise well, man. It yeah. is. I mean, our, our shows do have a very different vibe and I don't think I could pull y'all's off. I'm envious of it because it does kind of have a funner and lighter vibe. And, and I just, I don't think I could do that and do it well, uh, but I'm really glad you guys can. Well, you're, I think your podcast is just top-notch and inspired ours, so all, yeah. all kudos uh, well, to you. And, and Clint, good. we want to bring something up because we want all of our listeners to know this. Earlier this year, uh, when the Texas power grid crisis mm. occurred, Kristen was dying to do an episode about that, and we kind of put yeah. a call out on social media. Yeah. Like, who can we talk to? And I think you know this, that it was your suggestion that we get in touch with Krista Castaneda. Yeah, yeah. And, man, I thought that was so cool we got in touch with her, and that has ultimately been our most downloaded episode of season two until this one until dropped. Until now. Until now. <laughs> and, and Clint, I mean, to, to be completely frank with you, you could have read that post on social media and booked her yourself. 
but you, you gave her to us. Yeah. Um, well, so a couple things. I mean, I saw Kristen's question. I can't remember now if I saw it on LinkedIn or where I saw it, but I'm like, wow, that's a great idea. And I knew Krista. Krista's a former law partner of mine. And I knew she had, I had seen something she had just written on LinkedIn about it. And she was at the time, I think, even running for Texas Railroad Commissioner, which is the the commission in Texas that governs the oil and gas industry. And so I thought, well, you know, one, she'll probably do it, which is, you know, in booking a guest is always a big consideration. And two, she'll probably know what she's talking about. And three, I know that she's very um, conversant on these things. And so I, I was excited that she agreed to do it. And, and I'll tell you guys, I made the mistake of listening to that podcast right before bed. And, and I listened to it. Did you have nightmares? No, no, I didn't have nightmares. But but I was like, my plan was I was going to listen to about half of it, get tired, and then listen to the rest the next morning. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't go to sleep. It, it was fascinating. It was really interesting information, and probably in part, Kristen, because we had lived, you know, all of us Texans had lived through that. Sure. And I had read a lot about it, but but Krista's conversation and y'all did a great job in interviewing her was much deeper than anything I had read. And I found out a lot of information that I didn't know, but unfortunately I was really tired the next morning because I stayed up a lot later than I had intended to that oh, night, but kudos, kudos to you guys. Well, all, all thanks to you and our jaws, that, that whole episode, our jaws were on the floor about that. And, and look, here's another idea. As we sit here today, Clint, there's no gas in Virginia because of the shutdown mm. of the colonial yeah. pipeline, like 55% yeah. of all gas stations in the Commonwealth of Virginia have is that no right? Gas. Yes, sir. Oh wow! Oh my goodness! Yes, sir. And so you got to you got to plan every trip. So that might be the next Texas Power Grid episode. Sure, well, that's right. You you need a podcast on the Colonial Pipeline and and uh, hackers. That'll yeah. Be so fun. Clint, who should we get on? Tell us your yeah. connections. <laughs> <laughs> now, see, I, this one I can't help you with. You're on your Dang own it. on that one. All right. Well, hey, Clint, we have a very special. Um, thing happening right now, which is that you are okay. going to be the inaugural guest for our our new segment. It doesn't have theme music yet. No, no theme, not yet, not yet. Next time we'll have theme music. How about a little movie talk? Are you in for some movie talk? De de definitely, definitely. Now, I I'll, I'll warn you. You know, y'all know I coach football, and so there's there's some coaches on the staff that give me immeasurably hard time because I'm not real conversant with like new movies. But like, if we're going to talk about old movies, then then I'm going to be in good shape. You know what? We're going to talk about your movies that you oh, like. Oh my goodness. Okay. Because right. um, from listening to your podcast and reading your book, we're very well aware that some of your favorite movies include 50 First Dates and While You Were Sleeping. And yeah, I have to you tell you, me. I'm big fans of those two movies too. And you know what? 50 First Dates is like the best Adam Sandler movie. Nobody ever, when you talk about Adam, Adam Sandler, oh. people bring up like Billy Madison yeah. and no. yeah. uh, what's the golfing one? Scooter, Scooter McGavin, yeah. Happy Gilmore, the whatever. Water Boy. Nobody talks about 50 First Dates. So right. I, we love those movies as well. We've talked about it. What's the appeal of those movies to you? Why do you love those movies? So with 50 First Dates, I don't know. So Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore have a like a unique chemistry. So 50 First Dates and The Wedding Singer, they're both in those together, both of which are uh, like movies I really like. 50 First Dates, I think, is just such a cute movie because he takes such – you just fall in love with the story between the two of them. You know, and, and for people that hadn't seen it, she gets a knock on the head and, and wakes up every day like it's a brand new day. She has no memory of what has happened up to that point. And so he kind of educates her on what's going on and where they are. And and part of it's the story about what happens before they get there. And I, I don't know, they just have such a great chemistry and it's such a cute story. And it's set, the, the setting is in Hawaii, which is beautiful. And um, I don't know, I just really like that show. It's charming. It's charming. Although 
I was just, we were talking about this movie and and preparing for this podcast. And I'm like, you know, though, so much work. Like they bring her the newspaper every day and they paint over the mural every night. Like, would it have just been easier to tell her? Like, hey, baby, (laughs) you had a concussion or something. We're sorry, but. And every morning you'd have to have a rough conversation. But would it be easier to have a rough conversation every morning than to like paint the mural, get the newspaper, not to take away from the absolute charm of the movie. I'm sorry. Clint. Clint, Kristen says that Sean Astin's character in that movie reminds her of me. Do you agree with that? <laughs> well, I, I, I can only say no, because if I said yes, it would be enormously insulting. Clint is a polite man. He's not going to tell you the truth. <laughs> Fine, man. So, so while you were sleeping, and I'm a big fan of that movie too, but, but here's the thing about it, man, and I can't get my head around this. So she, Sandra Bullock, tells everybody she's Peter Gallagher's fiance. Then right. she falls in love with Bill the Pullman. brother, Bill Pullman. Right. Yeah. How do you come back from that? You, yeah. like, come on. Sorry, guys, I lied. <laughs> uh, first of all, I'm a liar. <laughs> and second of all, I'm in love with this guy over here. Yeah. Now, of course, as you know, I mean, she was kind of forced into that, right? So she didn't actually start the lie. The, the poor nurse had a misunderstanding and started the lie. <gasps> oh. And then she's immediately, she's immediately concerned that if she tells him the truth, then the poor grandmother who's already having heart palpitations is just going to fall over dead. And in, in, in fact, the godfather kind of pulls her to the side because he finds out early on and he says, look, you can't tell them because if you tell them, the family's going to be destroyed. They already got one kid that's in a okay. coma. And if you tell them, you know, they're, they're hanging on to him through you. So she's really kind of forced into it. Um, I forgot about how she that. falls. Right. I mean, she's got justification, but, but how you fall in love with the brother and, and then, actually walk down the aisle to marry the original guy only to pivot at the last moment. You know, there, there's a few artists in that movie. Spoiler alert, Clint. <laughs> well, you know, that's right. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. But uh, you know, at this point, it's, I think you can do spoiler alerts on 20 year old movies. You can. Yeah, and, and you can. You, you can. said in your book that you and the family watch that on a regular basis. Is that really true? Yeah. That's really true. Every Christmas Eve. I don't know how we started that day, but every Christmas Eve, that's the first movie out of the box. That's yeah. great. Yeah, so we want to um, turn a little bit towards eminent domain. Great. Yes, yeah, so Clint, you're an eminent domain attorney like Dave. Let's talk a little bit about this very easy and brief topic, the history of eminent domain. Um, <laughs> from what I understand, you've done some presentations and some writing about this. Um, will you give us like a brief synopsis of the history of eminent domain? What do you talk about when you do these presentations about the history of Where do you even start? You know, actually, uh, interestingly enough, if you go back to the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 21, there was a king who was very desirous of his neighbor's vineyard, and the neighbor was named Naboth. And he tried to to exchange Naboth's land for some other land in the kingdom, and Naboth said, no, I'm not going to sell it to you. Well, this particular king was married to a, fa- a fairly infamous Old Testament figure named Queen Jezebel. And, and after the king couldn't buy the vineyard, he comes back in and he's sulking in his room. And Queen Jezebel says, aren't you the king? Why, why are you in here sulking? And he said, well, Naboth won't sell my lamb. She said, you know, basically, you pitiful guy, I'll take care of it for you. And she quickly has Naboth killed and they take over the land. And so that, as far as I can tell, is the first mention of eminent domain in any historical literature. Now, Clint, I, I think that at the current time, you and I are on the opposite side of the aisle, so to speak. Meaning sure. I'm a condemning yep. authority lawyer exclusively, and you primarily represent landowners. Is that right? Yeah, also exclusively. That's right. So the question that I have for you, and I ask everybody this, I, you know, my spiel is, well, do you like to sit in traffic? No. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> We're building roads for you. 
<laughs> Do you like having running water and electricity? You're welcome. You're welcome. Right. So let's talk about your philosophy. Is it abused? Okay. Is it, should it never be engaged? Like what, what's your feeling about the entire institution or the entire device? So we'll start with eminent domain is absolutely necessary. And, and I've, I've said this, I'll continue to say it. I mean, we could not have a functioning society without the power of the government to acquire property for necessary projects. So it, it, it is a, it, it's very necessary. I'm not even sure I'll call it a necessary evil, but it's, it's necessary. Um, you know, I, I'm thankful for the constitutional provisions that we have in the country that say, look, if that happens, then you get paid fair market value uh, plus in many states, including my own, any damage that's caused to the, to the remaining part of your property, that just seems fair. Um, but no, I, I agree it's necessary. It, is it abused? I mean, I think we see instances of that. I mean, I, as you well know, Dave, there's a pretty well-known case called Kilo that came out of the U.S. Supreme Court, I don't know, roughly 10 years ago. Yeah. And that that was pretty permissive in terms of the government being able to exercise its own judgment that property should be taken from one group of property owners and given, in essence, to another private entity for the development, in that instance, of a a campus for a large employer and then the surrounding and supporting infrastructure of stores and restaurants and other things around it. And the community leader said, we think this is best. You, you know, you Suzette Kilo in your little pink house, you move out of the way. We're going to make, to make room for this development. And, and there was a, I think a very understandable um, reaction to that across the country in Texas and many, many other states that said, you know what, we, we're not really comfortable with that. We're not comfortable with giving the power to the government to exercise judgment to take property from one private entity and hand it over to another private entity just because they think it's best. And, and I think we very rightly saw a lot of pushback against that uh, in jurisdictions all across the country. And so, you know, after that kind of pushback, I don't think we've seen nearly as much um, abuse. I think we still sometimes see abuse. I think sometimes condemnors um, use the threat of eminent domain in a way that, you know, I, I think is is less than admirable. Oh, come um, on, Clint. No, we don't. <laughs> Um, now, there's a number of condemning authorities that do a great job, and I'm, I'm not trying to sweep everybody under the rug in one brush, but I, I do think that at times the uh, threat of eminent domain, particularly to an unsophisticated property owner, um, is, is, you know, a little bit heavy-handed. Uh, and, and, you know, I, you know, we see it in our office. A lot of times condemning authorities come in and say they're going to use the power of eminent domain to see if they can get a great deal, and if they don't get a great deal, you know what, they decide, well, we don't, we're not really going to do that after all. And, and that, I think, we ought not be doing. Yeah, I, I, I've seen that once or twice, unfortunately. But I, I want to raise a point about Kilo. Now, wasn't the um, uh, private party who was intended to be the ultimate recipient of that property Pfizer? It was, yeah. Well, since they invented the vaccine, we ought to just give them whatever they want, right? <laughs> but, well, that's right. That's right. But well, they never even used that property. Isn't that right? No, they did. Right. They yeah. never did. And so, and it's kind of, you know, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a powerful statement about do we really want our government officials to have the power to take property from Ms. Kilo and hand it over to Pfizer? Um, because, you know, a lot of times plans don't work out, even if they're well-intentioned. Now, Clint, what I find is fascinating is I made the decision uh, almost 15 years ago 
I, I did all kinds of complex litigation back in the day for many years before I started doing eminent domain. And I made the very conscious decision to only represent landowners. And when, I'm, excuse me. What I'm just gonna happened? I, I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> Don't edit it out. That's hysterical. I made the authority and slip. The very conscious decision <laughs> to only represent condemning authorities. All right. And I have stuck to that. And when landowners call, we, we refer them out. And I have a very, I had very good reasons for that. So I understand that you've done some condemning authority work in your past. What prompted your decision to represent landowners exclusively? Yeah, sure. So no, I started my career re- representing a governmental entity in Texas and did all their acquisition for about a, a decade. Um, and then as they, you know, kind of started running out of money to do new projects, I started taking on property owner work. And I enjoyed doing it, and I did do some of both work for a period of time. It, it got progressively harder, I would say, to be able to do that in a way that one didn't create business conflicts. I mean, you know, sometimes condemning authorities don't like it when you're doing property owner work, and property owners don't really like it when you're doing governmental work. So that's a business conflict. And then even sometimes we would get positional conflicts, which now become ethical conflicts potentially where, you know, something I'm advocating for one client becomes a problem for another client. And, and to be able to avoid all those, you've got to really be able to see around the corner well. Um, and then quite candidly, once, you know, you kind of make a decision to build a, a platform, uh, you don't want to have to start turning away work that's coming in off your platform. And so slowly over time, it just made more and more sense to jump on one side of the aisle and, um, you know, I've always, uh, although I had, it was a great honor to get to work with some of the condemning authority clients that I got to work for, and I'm thankful for that opportunity. I did always kind of like working for the property owner better. It just fit my personality. So here's a question. What do you think, Clint, is on the horizon for eminent domain law? Like, what do you think are the going to be the, like the new hot topics and the new, like the future battlegrounds in our industry? Yeah, and let me, let me preface that by saying it seems to me and you feel free to disagree with this, it seems to me it's the landowner's bar that's always pushing the new hot topics in eminent domain law. Like, y'all make something an issue that you're going to take up and push as far as you can. That's that. Just being frank, Clint, that's, that's the way I see it from my side of the aisle. Uh, that's probably fair. I don't think I can disagree with that. Uh, um, that's probably fair. I hadn't really thought about that, but that's probably fair. And I think, Kristen, to your to your question, I mean, I think there's still some clarification on public use and what really is a public use. And I think the way a lot of states have run away from the Kelo decision may at some point prompt the U.S. Supreme Court to revisit that. And I know they've had opportunities, and I think there's even a case there now where they would have an opportunity. So it wouldn't surprise me if we saw that revisited on the federal level at some point over the next decade. I think from a valuation standpoint, you know, certainly in, in Texas, we see this. It may not be as pronounced in other places, but as we get more and more infrastructure in place, and you talk about pipelines, you talk about elect, electric utility lines, it gets harder and harder to do that in virgin territory. So, you know, trying to build a pipeline somewhere where there hasn't been a pipeline before probably means you're going to run into environmental issues. And so, for a lot of reasons, it makes sense to put pipelines in existing corridors or utility lines in existing corridors. Then you get into the question of, okay, well, how do you value that? Is the highest and best use to be a pipeline corridor? Um, and so I think that's an issue, at least in our state, that is probably right for, for some further discussion. 
And then, you know, the final thing uh, I'm seeing here, I suspect the same is true in the jurisdictions that y'all work in. We're seeing more and more ground leases, and that's really a function of the market. I mean, the market is doing more and more ground leases, and there's any number of reasons why that's the case. And I think I think there's probably some probably some legal opinions that need to be developed around the law uh, when it comes to a piece of property that's probably ripe for a ground lease. Is that the way you value it, or is that the way you ought not value it? And so as we see really the marketplace pushing that more and more, I think that's going to make its way more and more into some of our valuation theory. That's interesting. I hadn't considered that, and I'll be on the lookout for it. Now, let me get your input on something that was very, very hot here in Virginia for a couple of years, and that's relocation litigation. We were seeing the envelope pushed on relocation. My partner and I, Ross Green, defended three or four suits that were brought pursuant to either the Uniform Relocation Act or the Virginia Relocation Act. One of them went all the way to the Virginia Supreme Court. And uh, is that something you've seen in your practice? Uh, Do you get involved in relocation issues? And have you ever filed a lawsuit under any of the relocation acts? I I have never filed a lawsuit. I do get involved in the relocation piece because unlike a lot of lawyers, I've got some exposure to it. I mean, I had to do that when I was on the condom north side. We would get relocation questions. And so I had to sort through it and understand the Uniform Relocation, Uniform Real Property and Relocation Act, and the various regulations that are around it. And so I do get into that. And I know I'm going to disagree with Kristen. She and I have different positions on this. I mean, no. I do think. <laughs> no. Not I always, mean, I, Clint. Not always. <laughs> I, I, I think the property owner needs an outlet to be able to challenge the decision of a condemning authority that's making, you know, its relocation decisions. Number one, the regulations are less than clear. Okay. So, you know, I think people could read the regulation and disagree. Some things are, some things are easy, right? But then there's some things where I think there's some gray area where the regulations don't really address it. And it, it, it you know, in the way, as you guys know, the way the regulations are, are written, the, the, the uh, you know, chickens kind of garden the hen house or the foxes garden the hen house. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the government entity that's responsible for paying the relocation appoints a committee of its own people to make a decision about what relocation ought to be paid. Well, you know, most people would agree, perhaps that's not the, the most just or fair system. Uh, I think here again, there are some entities that do a great job of it. They pay it like they ought to pay it. And even when you have a dispute, um, they get three people that know what they're doing and try to treat the property owner fairly and try to treat, you know, a lot of times their employer fairly, but they, they, they try to be fair actors. I think there's other situations where that's not the case. And I think you need some kind of judicial redress um, when that's the situation. Now, what I'm, I'm going to argue Kristen's side for a minute. I don't think any of us think it's great to have all of a sudden a bunch of relocation uh, lawsuits popping up. I don't think that's good policy for anybody, but I do think that that the property owner, if they have some dispute about a relocation issue, um, you know, really the 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 adjudication of that is is uh, not as ideal as I wish it were. Clint, you're right, and I I actually I think I I wrote a blog piece about this uh, months ago, but this the whole idea of the, there's the appeals process, and then. All the regs say beyond that is like there can be a judicial review. And it's like, oh, okay, when, what, now, what does that mean? Like you go through the appeals process, then there's an, a judicial review. It's just very vague in the regulations about that. So I actually, I kind of agree with you on that. Don't tell anybody but, I said that. 
Yeah, and in Texas, I don't, I don't know what the situation is in Virginia Day, but in Texas, if you file a federal lawsuit, they'll pretty quickly wash their hands of it and say it's a state issue. And mm-hmm. if you file it in state court, they'll pretty quickly wash their hands of it and say it's a federal issue. <laughs> so you, you just literally can't get mm-hmm. it reviewed right now. And, and uh, I'm like, surely that can't be the case. Well, let me get your input on another area in the, the uh, eminent domain field, and that is in Virginia right now, we can't swing a dead cat without catching an inverse condemnation suit. Do you have mm. many of those going on? Have you filed many? Um, I, I haven't filed a lot. I do have some going on. Uh, we have, I, I don't think this is, I'm not, I'm not betraying state secrets here. We have a number of cases that arose from flooding related to Hurricane Harvey. Yeah. Yep. And that's really all we have. You know, in, in Texas, we don't get a lot of regulatory cases. I don't know why that is. Uh, our our local governments maybe are not as aggressive as governments in, in California or other places on the coast. So we just don't see a lot of that work here. Uh, but I have had a hand few, handful of inverse cases typically relating to flooding or flood-related issues. Always related to flood stuff. That's interesting. Hey, guess what time it is? What's up? <laughs> It's time for cross-examination with Dave. Are you in, Clint? Can you handle this? <laughs> I, I like it. I like the mu- the uh, music bumper, too. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. Dave is going to ask you rapid fire, five questions, and it's your job, your duty, your responsibility to answer each of the five questions with one sentence or less. Unless, of course, you want to say more. Then we won't edit it out. But that's, that's basically the rules. Are we ready? I'm going to need that theme music one more time. Hit it. Clint, you ready for question number one? Let's do it. All right, Clint. Last fall, my alma mater, the University of Virginia, (laughs) played your alma mater, Abilene Christian, in football for the first time ever. Oh, boy. Who won that game and what was the final score? (laughs) Well, Virginia won that game. It was 55 to 15. And uh, as an ACU alum, we, we were just excited to be on the same field with Go you. Go Wildcats. We, we were excited <laughs> to play you guys. And we very, very much appreciate uh, your alma mater accommodating our schedule because we'd lost a couple of uh, yeah. opponents because of COVID. Yeah, that's right. And Abilene Christian stepped in. So thank you very much. Are you ready for number two? Let's do it. Clint, we know that you coach football because literally every soul in Texas either coaches football, plays football, or gives birth to somebody who does. (laughs) And Clint, we also know that you're a man of faith. Now, now, tell us the truth. Do you ever utter naughty words on the sidelines when your players screw up? Ever? Yes. And and even even more than that, I really try to control it, and I'll add one more sentence. Um, Even more than that, there are times where it's – right on the tip of my tongue and I catch myself and I I bite my tongue and I start trying to figure out a substitute word. And so some of my players probably think I have a stuttering problem, but it's just that word is there and I'm really working hard not to let it come out. So what you're saying is, darn it. No, he screams the word sugar all the time. (laughs) Sugar. No, I think what this tells us is that maybe Clint Schumacher is actually human. Yeah, very much so. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, Clint, number three, Clint, as a landowner lawyer, have you ever gotten a client's initial offer from a condemning agency and said, oh, this looks good. You ought to take this. Tell us the truth. Uh, actually, a few times, yes. Oh, come on now. And Clint's a few not going to lie to us. Yeah, and a few times the uh, potential client gives us the appraisal, and, and we got to tell them, look, I don't think there's much we can do to help you. 
Well, uh, for the record, that never happens in Virginia, so I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you don't have a Clint Schumacher in Virginia. <laughs> no, we don't. We need you gotta one. You got to come to Texas. <laughs> we need one. All right, question number four. Two of your favorite movies, 50 First Dates and While You Were Sleeping, involve people with amnesia, and they also involve people lying to the victims. Now, isn't that kind of messed up, and what's that say about you? <laughs> well, that's... <laughs> That's very insightful. You know, I'd never made that connection. Another one of my favorite movies is Sting, which is another kind of, you know, movie of deception. Uh -oh. um, I don't know, Dave. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> I'm, now, now I'm worried. I may have to go see a psychologist. I don't know. Well, uh, well they're, I, in all candor, they're both very, very good movies, and I like them both. Now, Clint, in the movie version of Second Wind, which is your new book, which we're about to talk about, who's going to play Clint Schumacher? A younger version of Robert Redford. Yes. Oh, yeah. Good one. Yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that was cross-examination with Dave. <laughs> bow, 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 bow. Clint, you are the author of a brand new book, Second Wind, Decisions the Resilient Make to Overcome Adversity. And it's it's available on Amazon. And we're we're each holding copies right now. We have our uh, copies. They're not great. signed yet, but we'll get there. Mm -hmm. We now, can fix that. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is kind of an inspirational self-help book designed to help, what my interpretation is, anyone and everyone. Now, in your own words, what is the purpose of this book that you've authored? It's really to help people who are struggling with getting through an adversity or struggling with an obstacle in their life to equip them with some tools to get through that adversity with, with more velocity and to come out the other side stronger and wiser than they were when they went into it. And so it was written with that person in mind. Now, I'll tell you, a, a, a subgroup that, that I think it fits is people who are working with people like that, parents, mentors, employers, coaches who are working with, with young people, with athletes, with people in their 20s and 30s, beginning their careers, to to give them some things to help equip those that they're mentoring and coaching and parenting um, to work through the adversities that they're facing or will face. Clint, could you have better timing with this book at the end of the last, you know, 12 to 18 months when everybody's faced challenges and everybody's faced some adversity? Like, I just, I don't think you could have had better timing with this book. Kudos. And it's a, it's a, it's a phenomenal book. I've, I read it cover to cover, loved every second of it. And how long is, oh, how long has the book been in the works? Uh, about two and a half years. Uh, it's taken a while. So this, I started the book in early 2019. And then really, Kristen, to your point, I, I had it basically done in early 2020. But then as we're all entering COVID together and working through what that means in terms of disruption of our lives, disruption of our personal networks, disruption of our support systems, there are a lot of things that I went back and rewrote in the book after you know, walking through that experience myself and hearing the struggles that people were having in this strange new world that we're in. And, and um, although, you know, it's not COVID specific, certainly it was, it really changed the way I thought about some of the things that were in the book. And so I spent part of last year rewriting it uh, before ultimately it was, as you say, released here very recently. So COVID, COVID made you go back and like revise some, some, some parts of it. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, there was so much coming out in March and April and May of 2020 about this subject of resilience and how how do we all deal corporately as a community and as a country and, and as a world with this obstacle that we've all now found ourselves in. 
And there were so many good thoughts about struggles that people were having and solutions and tools that people were using that I thought, you know, there's some really good stuff here that I've, I've learned over the last, you know, 90 days being the kind of the first 90 days of, of the COVID situation, at least in the U S that I thought really revised my thinking about a few things. Now, Clint, uh, this is actually pretty interesting to me. Your, the book is broken up, um, by chapter, but instead of saying chapter one or chapter two, it says decision one, decision two. And it seems like they're kind of sort of commands or commandments for action. Is that, is that how you intended it? It is. Um, yeah. And so Dave, what I noticed as I was looking at the lives of people that were really, really, really resilient and had overcome adversity. And as I look back at times in my own life, when I was facing obstacles, it really came down to a series of decisions that people made. I mean, decide to take the long view, decide, decide to connect with other people, decide to release resentment. And, and once you make the decision, and this was the key thing that I kept saying, once you made the decision or somebody made the decision, getting the resources to figure out how to walk out that decision, those would start to come. The key part was making the decision to do things that make you more resilient. And as I say, once you decide to walk down that path and you can normally figure out how to, how to get the way forward, but it's the stop that starts most people. It's making the decision to do those things, to rise above the obstacles that we face. And that there are basically 14 decisions in your book. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to give the spoiler. I'm not going to give the spoiler. I'm going to make people go out and read it. And they're very interesting, but how did you come up with each one? Did you just like get out a yellow legal pad and say, well, these are the 14 things I'm going to talk about. Or was there an event in your life which inspired each one? Or how did you come up with each of the 14 decisions? Um, I really, it was a collect. So all this started many years ago, actually here again, while I was coaching and trying to figure out how do I take a team that had had an experience where I felt like they quit in a game and how do I begin to teach them how to be mentally tough or how to be resilient? And so I started gathering up material really to try to teach what at that time was a group of, of, of players who are going into the sixth grade, how to be more resilient. How can I coach them better than I have coached them in the past on this topic? And I started digging into the research of what other coaches did, what the military does. And I began to look at other really resilient people that had walked through incredible circumstances, some of whom were in the public eye, some of whom weren't, and tried to figure out what are the commonalities? I mean, what, what keeps appearing in these people's stories that are tools of truly resilient people? And it ended up being, in essence, 13, um, 13 decisions. Um, and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm maybe partially superstitious, and so I didn't want to have 13. So I added a 14th, which is just for parents. Um, so I wouldn't have just 13 uh, chapters. So I ended up with a 14th <laughs> uh, because of that. Um, and But it really arose out of just the observations I had from the research I was doing about commonalities that showed up in resilient people's lives. And each of the decisions or chapters, if you will, are supported by stories and anecdotes. Help somebody like me bring it home, right? So where did you get the stories and anecdotes to support each of your decisions? Um, I just became very in tune to looking for it once I started doing the research. And so I started finding things that were written. I began to notice resilient stories that I was hearing or I would go somewhere and hear somebody speak and be, be struck by the story that they had. Or I would look at, you know, people that I was in community with or had relationships with 
where I had seen instances in their life where I went, wow, I can't imagine what it would be like to walk through what they just walked through and was struck by how well they walked through it and how they came out the other side of that. So I just kind of, kind of started taking notice of these things and, and uh, started to try to compile them and then pick the ones that I thought would fit um, the audience that I was trying to write to. Now, one of your themes, and this is me um, summarizing it, these are my words, not yours, is to reinforce the positive about yourself. Tell yourself mm. kind words about who you are and what you can do. Yeah. Yeah, I call that that chapter's decide to create an internal resilient strip a script. And so, you know, we all we say hundreds and hundreds of words to ourselves every minute, every hour. We have this continual, you know, I call it a movie soundtrack playing in our mind. And when we be, begin to become intentional about what we're saying to ourselves, I think it carries tremendous power. Yes. You know, I, I saw a I saw a um, some research the other day that that by the time somebody turns 18, they've seen over 5 million advertising messages. Okay. Well, anytime, anytime somebody's advertising, inevitably, they're generally advertising saying, hey, something is not quite right with you that you can fix if you buy my product or my service. And we're just bombarded with that. And as I began to think about, gosh, you know, I'm bombarded with these messages of you're not enough. You don't have what it takes. You need something else in your life to truly be happy. And if we don't begin to counteract that in a very intentional way with the script that we're playing in our head, it's very easy to begin to believe, you know what, I'm not enough. I, I do need something else. I'm really not happy. Um, and until we take control of that message and begin to counteract these other messages that are coming in, those things that we think ultimately become, um, thought, uh, you know, the thoughts turn into actions. And until we can control the thoughts, we're beholden to them in terms of how we're acting. Yeah, and it's easier. It's easier to believe the negative stuff. It's easier to, that's oh, yeah. the easier path. And one, yeah. one thing I took from that chapter and from the entire book, Clint, is sometimes we say very unkind things to mm. ourselves in our right. inner monologue or movies or whatever the case may be. And sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. Right. And it's so incredibly destructive. And a number of years ago, you know, I, I realized that when I would, maybe this is TMI, but I realized I would make a mistake and I'd say, God, that was stupid, Dave. That's so stupid. Mm. Why'd you do that? And that's, that's not being kind to yourself. And it's not productive. And it's not productive. And it doesn't make you smarter by telling yourself you're stupid, <laughs> right. right? Or you did something dumb. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I say this in the book, and, and uh, I heard somebody say this. It stuck with me. I mean, if somebody talked to us the way we talk to ourselves, you know, we, we would at least be offended if not go, oh, yeah. you know, try to, try to whip their butt. Yeah, I don't want to yeah. be friends with that guy. Right. <laughs> Right. We should give ourselves the same grace that we demand from others. That's um, right. Here, but, but here's the kind of the, the internal struggle with this. And I'm going to read a line from the book where you say, when we reflect on past success, we reinforce our confidence that we can experience success in the future. And I happen to agree with that. But how is that different from, oh, I don't know, self-aggrandizement? And, and where's the line between that and arrogance or narcissism? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, um, and I'm not sure I'm wise enough to provide a, a, a full answer or a complete answer to that, but, but, but I would say this, you know, I think anytime we face difficulties in our life, we can, we can choose one of two paths. Either one, we can decide, you know what, this is going to be really, really hard, but I have what it takes to do this 
but then we've got to convince ourselves that's true. And I've got what it takes to do this because I did A and B and C and we're, we're providing a foundation for our future success based on the message that we're telling ourselves as opposed to, gosh, this is, this is too big for me. I don't have, you know, I can't do this. This is too hard. I'm not going to be able to pull this off. Um, and, and I think in, in, you know, and Dave, here's, here's kind of what I think about. And maybe those of us who are lawyers, certainly trial lawyers can relate to this. I mean, anytime I stand up in front of a jury, that's a moment of anxiety for me. I mean, I, I, I have to kind of pep myself up to bring my best self to that moment and to be able to say, you know what, Clint, number one, you're well-prepared. Number two, you've been able to do this before. Number three, you're well-trained or you figured out how to train yourself to do this. You've done all the work that you need to do to be successful in this moment. Now, just stand up and be your best self and go and do it. And, and I've kind of got to go through that process every time before I stand up in front of a jury. Um, and that's just one example of many things in life. But I think that as we begin to be very intentional about what we're saying to ourselves in those, those moments when it's really hard, then I, you know, I think that has an impact on how we perform. Yeah, in your chapter entitled Decide to Focus on Your Strengths, you, you raise the, um, the, an analogy to Clark Kent and Superman. Right? right, where Clark Kent was Superman, and sometimes we have the uh, tendency to focus on the Clark Kent side of ourselves instead of the Superman in the cape. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Is you know, as Kristen said, it's a lot easier to find our weaknesses. Yeah, you know, it's a lot easier to see somebody's Facebook feed and go, you know what, my life is not as good as that. What that person's, what's wrong with me? Um, it's it's a lot easier for our, to let our minds go that way for whatever reason. Um, and I think we have to be very intentional if we're going to take a different approach. And that, that different approach really becomes buoyancy in terms of our resiliency and our walking through adversities that we face. Yeah, and I, I want to read a couple of lines from that chapter and then bring it home to a personal experience and, and get your input. Yeah. And, and in that chapter, you say, uh, and this really hits home with me, Clint, many lawyers' identities are wrapped up in being a lawyer. Mm. It defines them and gives them value. However, those who derive their feelings of self-worth from practicing law often end up hollow and broken. Oh, God, truer words were never spoken. Repeatedly in divorces and with children who felt emotionally neglected. Okay? And as a a fellow attorney, I couldn't possibly agree with you more. And I I divide my career into three segments. The first one was kind of um, the enthusiastic first five years of practicing law, right? Where I was ready to take over the world and made a fool out of myself in court because I was too stupid to be afraid. uh, Don't say that. Did a lot of learning, (laughs) did a lot of learning. And then there was the next seven years, which were kind of the dark years, where they were really, really tough, where I wanted out of the profession so bad. I was doing high-stakes, complex litigation. It was really hard. There was a lot of adversity. There was a lot of um, nastiness between the other side and my side. It wasn't eminent domain, by the way. And, and, and God, I wanted out so badly, but I didn't know how to do anything else. And so I changed jobs. I went back to my current firm where I've been for 15, 16 years or so. And this has just been glorious because my focus has completely changed from from the old um, de- defining your self-worth from practicing law to let's create something cool. Let's yeah. create a practice group. Let's learn a new area. Let's do a podcast. Yeah. 
And, and so fantastic, fantastic words of wisdom in here that hit home and really resonated with me. And, and I really appreciate your writing the book, uh, and I enjoyed every bit of it. Uh, well, Dave, thank you. And your transparency is, is striking. And um, as you were talking, I kept thinking, yeah, I felt the same way. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, the first couple of years, you know, same thing. I'm, I was so into work that so many other areas of my life were neglected. And my, my poor, you know, wife finally kind of had this come to Jesus meeting with me. It was like, look, you, you are spending so much time and you have so little boundaries at work that I feel neglected. That's I'm kind of paraphrasing her words a little bit, but that's, that was the message she was sending me. And, and she kind of had to hit me over the head uh, emotionally for me to figure out I'm about to lose everything else that I have said is meaningful to me um, because I'm addicted to this job. And, and until I began to change because so much of my self-worth was wrapped up in being successful in my career that I was getting ready to forfeit everything else. And until I began to change that, you know, mindset, uh, I, I couldn't get off that destructive path. And so Dave, everything that you just talked about, man, I felt like I lived right through. And at some point, you know, a turning point for me, and I talk about this in the book, is when I really sat down and figured out what are my core values? What is it that's truly important to me? And that English word core comes from the Latin word, also core, C-O-R, but it's affiliated with our heart. And a, and a core value is a, a value that bubbles up from our heart. And we, you know, core values are almost laughable in the corporate world because they're just words on a, on a, on a board that the employee base doesn't really relate to. But when we think about our own personal core values and taking the time to figure out, man, what is it that's really important to me? And then when we take the next incredible step, which is then to begin to align our life and our time and our energy in accordance with that, which bubbles up from our heart now now you're really getting to a, a life that begins to br bring fulfillment. And e even better, the next word that comes out of core is the English word courage. And so when we're acting in a way consistent with our heart and consistent with our core values, we have the courage to do hard things. We have the courage to be resilient. We have the courage to overcome adversity. We have the courage to be a parent a good parent, even when it's really, really hard because your kid is not doing what you're trying to tell them to do. We have the courage to act in a manner that, that brings about social justice because we think it's the right thing to do. And we've got the courage to do it because we've decided that's what's bubbling up from our heart and that's what we want our life to be about. Clint, I can't think of a better way to wrap this show up. I got to tell you, my friend, you are uh, a class act. You are an inspiration. You gave me goosebumps just now, and your book is phenomenal. I want to tell our listeners, go to www.findsecondwind.com. Order this book. It's a game changer. Clint, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being a friend of the podcast, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Hey, y'all keep doing great work. I really appreciate everything that you do, and you're doing a great service. Likewise. This is the Eminent Domain Podcast. New phone. Who this? This is the Eminent Domain Podcast. Who told you that? This is the Eminent Domain Podcast. You wish. This is the Eminent Domain Podcast. That's not it. This is the Eminent Domain Podcast. No, this is the Pendulum Land Kristen, Podcast. Kristen, I'm the only one who introduces the show. I can do what I want.
This is the Eminent Domain Podcast. Yeah. And Billy Squire had a number one record, too. He did. Uh-huh. This is the Eminent Domain Podcast. Dave, no. This is the Eminent Domain Podcast. Nuh-uh. This is the Eminent Domain Podcast. What? This is the Eminent Domain Podcast. I guess it is. This spam and peanut butter. Can I have it? <laughs>